like I'm standing at the front of a bus, a very wide bus, but I'm not sure where the bus is going, but you're welcome uh, to be on it. Just a reminder, as you can see, uh, the Lord's table is set and we will be celebrating the Lord's Supper together as part of our worship this morning. And then again, uh, the reminder that we give every week once the service is over and you're ready to leave then please just uh, stand up and move directly to the exit, keeping a two-meter distance from others. And we are meeting again this evening at 6 p.m. That will be online. We will be continuing in Matthew's Gospel, and that will be followed by an online coffee time, which uh, hopefully you have an email for. If you don't, uh, Steve Hope can get you uh, the details you need for that. And then just looking ahead to next week, Next Sunday morning, we have a visit from Slavic Gospel Association, a ministry that we've supported uh, for many years, long before I came to the church. And Wayne O'Leary will be coming uh, to update us on their work and also to preach as well. So that's next Sunday morning. We're going to begin our worship with some words of Scripture where The Lord himself speaks to us 
and shows us the difference between him and us. He says in Isaiah chapter 55, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The Bible tells us that our God is greater than we can understand. His thoughts and His ways are higher than ours, and we worship Him for that. We bow before His majesty, and we sing, holy, holy, holy. Musicians will lead us in this hymn.
Let's pray. God in three persons. We worship you, Father, Son, and Spirit. And we acknowledge that your thoughts and your ways are higher than ours. We will never understand everything about you. But we do know enough to praise you as the Holy One. Perfect in your wisdom, flawless in your justice, and overflowing with mercy and love. We see your character displayed in the cross of Jesus Christ, that place where divine love paid the price of divine justice. We thank you that price was paid so that we could go free, so we could enter into eternal blessing rather than eternal judgment. Because of the cross, we come this morning assured of your goodness, even in the things we don't understand. We pray for members of our fellowship who particularly need this assurance of your wisdom and goodness today. We think of Pat Davies as she mourns the death of her sister Violet. We think of Lindsay Gordon and her family as they prepare for the funeral of Lindsay's mother this week. And we know that each one of us and each family has their own need today. Their own need to trust your wisdom and goodness in their situation. And so we ask you to bring to all of us reassurance of your love and bring fresh confidence in your power. And as we turn now to your word, this word that is alive and active not just words on a page, but words that do things in our hearts and lives. As we turn to this written but living word, we pray you will help all of us to hear your voice. Help us see you as you are, the God who is always greater, always more wise than we can understand. And as we see you as you are, we will praise you. Amen. Last week we listened to Moses together as he gave us instruction from Israel's history. We saw how the Israelites left Mount Sinai to go into the land of Canaan. That was the land God had promised them. And they had plenty of evidence it was a good land, a place where they would flourish. But we saw how the Israelites refused to go in and take the land. 
even though it was good, even though God promised to go before them and fight for them. And the reason for Israel's failure was their focus was on the wrong things. They could only see the obstacles in their way. That's what they saw rather than seeing the faithfulness and the power of their God. The Israelites focused on the big people and the tall city walls that were in Canaan. They focused on those things rather than focusing on the God who had got them this far. And the result of that wrong focus was loss and defeat for the Israelites. And God said that entire generation of Israelites would miss out on Canaan. The only exceptions were Joshua and Caleb. Their focus was in the right place, and they would enter the land. But the rest of that generation would die outside of the land. Now, as we saw last week, that doesn't mean God is finished with the Israelites. Not at all. He said the next generation would enter Canaan. So what do that next generation need to know? What do they need to get firmly fixed in their minds and their hearts if they're not going to repeat the mistakes of their parents? They need to know that their God is God unlimited. In a sense, this passage answers the question we asked last week. Is it a risky business to move forward in obedience to God? This passage shows There's no place the Israelites can go where the Lord is not king. There's no ruler or army they might face that is not under the Lord's authority. That is what the next generation of Israelites need to know. It's what every generation of God's people need to know. So as we read this morning from Deuteronomy chapters 2 and 3, at first... You might think you're being subjected to a lesson in ancient geography as we go through this. But what this is really about is the sovereign power of the Lord. Power that is not hindered in the slightest by national borders or by human strength. If we wanted to sum up what we're about to read in Deuteronomy, we find a perfect summary in the words of the Apostle Paul. As Paul preached in the city of Athens, he said this, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He himself gives life, gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. Our God is not only concerned with us. All the nations are under his sovereign power, including their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. So with that in mind, let's pick up at Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 1, and we're going to read all the way through to chapter 3, verse 11. At the end of chapter 1, Moses reminded the Israelites east of the Jordan how their parents had been turned back by God after they refused to enter Canaan. The Lord commanded that generation to turn around and head south. 
back to the desert above the Red Sea. And now in chapter 2, verse 1, Moses says, Then we turned back and set out towards the wilderness along the route to the Red Sea, as the Lord had directed me. For a long time we made our way around the hill country of Seir. Then the Lord said to me, You have made your way around this hill country long enough. Now turn north. Give the people these orders. You are about to pass through the territory of your relatives, the descendants of Esau who live in Seir. They will be afraid of you, but be very careful. Do not provoke them to war, for I will not give you any of their land, not even enough to put your foot on. I have given Esau the hill country of Seir as his own. You are to pay them in silver for the food you eat and the water you drink. The Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He has watched over your journey through this vast wilderness. These 40 years the Lord your God has been with you, and you have not lacked anything. So we went on past our relatives, the descendants of Esau who live in Seir. We turned from the Araba road, which comes up from Elath and Ezion Geber, and traveled along the desert road of Moab. Then the Lord said to me, Do not harass the Moabites or provoke them to war, for I will not give you any part of their land. I have given Ar to the descendants of Lot as a possession. The Emites used to live there, a people strong and numerous and as tall as the Anakites. Like the Anakites, they too were considered Rephaites, but the Moabites called them Emites. Horites used to live in Seir, but the descendants of Esau drove them out. They destroyed the Horites from before them and settled in their place, just as Israel did in the land the Lord gave them as their possession. And the Lord said, now get up and cross the Zered Valley. So we crossed the valley. Thirty-eight years passed from the time we left Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the Zered Valley. By then, that entire generation of fighting men had perished from the camp, as the Lord had sworn to them. The Lord's hand was against them until he had completely eliminated them from the camp. Now, when the last of these fighting men among the people had died, the Lord said to me, Today you are to pass by the region of Moab at Ar. When you come to the Ammonites, do not harass them or provoke them to war, for I will not give you possession of any land belonging to the Ammonites. I have given it as a possession to the descendants of Lot. That too was considered a land of the Rephaites who used to live there. But the Ammonites called them Zamzamites. They were a people strong and numerous and as tall as the Anakites. The Lord destroyed them from before the Ammonites. He drove them out and settled in their place. The Lord had done the same thing for the descendants of Esau who lived in Seir when he destroyed the Horites from before them. They drove them out and have lived in their place to this day. As for the Avites, who used to live in villages as far as Gaza, the Kaftorites coming out of Kaftor destroyed them and settled in their place. Set out now and cross the Arnon Gorge. 
I have given into your hand Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his country. Begin to take possession of it and engage him in battle. This very day I will begin to put the terror and fear of you and all the nations under heaven. They will hear reports of you and will tremble and be in anguish because of you. From the desert of Kedemoth, I sent messengers to Sihon, king of Heshbon, offering peace and saying, let us pass through your country. We will stay on the main road. We will not turn aside to the right or to the left. Sell us food to eat and water to drink for their price in silver. Only let us pass through on foot as the descendants of Esau who live in Seir and the Moabites who live in Ar did for us until we cross the Jordan into the land the Lord our God is giving us. But Sihon king of Heshbon refused to let us pass through. For the Lord your God had made his spirit stubborn and his heart obstinate in order to give him into your hands, as he has now done. The Lord said to me, see, I have begun to deliver Sihon and his country over to you. Now begin to conquer and possess his land. When Sihon and all his army came out to meet us in battle at Jahaz, the Lord our God delivered him over to us and we struck him down, together with his sons and his whole army. At that time we took all his towns and completely destroyed them, men, women, and children. We left no survivors. But the livestock and the plunder from the towns we had captured we carried off for ourselves. From a roar on the rim of the Arnon Gorge and from the town in the gorge, even as far as Gilead, not one town was too strong for us. For the Lord our God gave us all of them. But in accordance with the command of the Lord our God, we did not encroach on any of the land of the Ammonites, neither the land along the course of the Jabbok nor that around the towns in the hills. Next, we turned and went up along the road towards Bashan, and Og, king of Bashan, with his whole army, marched out to meet us in battle at Edri. The Lord said to me, do not be afraid of him, for I have delivered him into your hands, along with his whole army and his land. Do to him what you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon. So the Lord our God also gave into our hands Og, king of Bashan, and all his army. We struck them down, leaving no survivors. At that time, we took all his cities. There was not one of the 60 cities that we did not take from them, the whole region of Argob, Og's kingdom in Bashan. All these cities were fortified with high walls and with gates and bars, and there were also a great many unwalled villages. We completely destroyed them, as we had done with Sihon, king of Heshbon, destroying every city, men, women, and children. But all the livestock and the plunder from their cities we carried off for ourselves. So at that time, we took from these two kings of the Amorites the territory east of the Jordan, from the Arnon Gorge as far as Mount Hermon. Hermon is called Syrian by the Sidonians. The Amorites call it Senir. We took all the towns on the plateau and all Gilead and all Bashan as far as Seleka and Edri, towns of Og's kingdom in Bashan. Og, king of Bashan, was the last of the Rephaites. His bed was decorated with iron 
and was more than nine cubits long and four cubits wide. It is still in Rabbah of the Ammonites. This is God's Word. And as Moses brings this instruction from Israel's history, he points us to three foundational truths. First of all, God rules all nations. Second, God rules the timing of His judgment. And third, God rules the things you fear. First of all, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 23. God rules all nations. Chapter 2, verse 1 says the Israelites obeyed God's command to turn back from the edge of Canaan and head south to the wilderness. And Moses says they wandered about there for a long time. Later, he'll be more precise. They wandered about the desert for 38 years at that point, a very long time. And if we add the two years they'd already been there straight after the exodus from Egypt when they were at Mount Sinai, if we put those together, that's a total of 40 years in the wilderness. And we already know the reason for those years of wandering. It was so the exodus generation would die off in the desert. And so when Moses says in chapter 2, verse 2, then the Lord your God said to me, you've made your way around this hill country long enough, now turn north. When the Lord says that, he's telling Moses to take the new generation north. Moses himself isn't going to enter Canaan, but he will see this generation safely to the edge of Canaan. These young Israelites will do what their parents failed to do. And in order to have the good sense to do what their parents failed to do, they need to understand that God rules all nations. I said earlier, we're not to think of this merely as an ancient geography lesson, but it is true if we're going to follow this account, we need at least to have a vague idea of the geography. So in what follows... As the new generation of Israelites head north, aiming eventually for the land of Canaan, we're going to see them come up on the east side of the Dead Sea, bypassing this territory, the territory of the Edomites, Moabites, and Ammonites. They're going to bypass that, and then we're going to see them taking possession of territories occupied by King Sihon of the Amorites, and King Og of the Rephaites, this area. Now, we'll worry about Sihon and Og later, but first we need to hear about the territories Israel passed through without taking possession of them. And we're told they did this because of God's command. Look again at chapter 2, verse 4, where the Lord tells Moses, Give the people these orders. You're about to pass through the territory of your relatives, the descendants of Esau who live in Seir. They will be afraid of you, but be very careful. Do not provoke them to war, for I will not give you any of their land, not even enough to put your foot on. I have given Esau the hill country of Seir as his own. You are to pay them in silver for the food you eat and the water you drink. 
The Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He has watched over your journey through this vast wilderness. These 40 years the Lord your God has been with you, and you have not lacked anything. The descendants of Esau were called Edomites. And in the biblical storyline, what Esau is famous for is being the older son of Isaac who missed out on God's blessing. The blessings promised to Isaac's father Abraham would come to the descendants of Esau's younger brother, Jacob, and his family. But what we're being shown here is that does not mean God had no blessing for Esau's descendants. The blessings attached to God's covenant with Abraham would not come to the Edomites, but that did not mean Esau's descendants passed into some kind of shadow land where God paid them no attention. Even though the Edomites were peripheral to the main storyline of Scripture, because that storyline focuses on Abraham's descendants through the line of Jacob, the Israelites. Still, these verses show us God does not have tunnel vision for the Israelites. He has plans and purposes for other peoples too. And in fact, as these landless Israelites march through Edom, they might be tempted to feel a little bit resentful. Aren't we supposed to be God's chosen people? And we don't yet have a land of our own. These people seem to be more blessed than we are. But God says to the Israelites, don't mess with the Edomites. And don't get any ideas about taking their land for yourselves, not even a square foot of it. Don't touch it because I reserve the right to bless these people in the way that I choose. I reserve the right to give them whatever inheritance I choose. So let the blessings I've given you and the blessings I've promised you be enough for you. Don't try to snatch the blessings I've given to the Edomites. And don't resent the fact that I have blessed them. And that goes down even to the level of paying for whatever food and water they use as they pass through Edom. The Israelites are not to think they're entitled to take anything from the Edomites. And if we think about this ourselves, it's a good reminder, I think, to let God be God in our own situation. He is free to bless people around us in any way that he pleases. Even people who aren't Christians. Whatever they have is from God, whether they acknowledge that or not. And you and I have no cause to be resentful for what they have. You and I are to consider how richly God has blessed us. And we're to consider the even richer blessings he has promised us in the future. Let's not get down in the mouth about what God chooses to give to other people. 
Our God rules all the nations and he gives blessing as he chooses. That reality is underlined as the Israelites leave the territory of the Edomites and then come to the land of the Moabites. The Moabites were descended, descended from Abraham's nephew, Lot. And so like the descendants of Esau, they are also peripheral to the Bible's storyline. But here too, in verse 9, God says to Israel, leave them and their land alone. I have given it to them, it's not for you. Don't harass the Moabites or provoke them to war. God gives blessing as he chooses. And then in the verses that follow, we're shown what might be an even more surprising reality. God fights battles as he chooses. In verses 10 to 12, we have a historical comment. And it mentions the people who lived in the territories of Edom and Moab before the Edomites and Moabites. Those people were the Emites and the Horites. And then if you glance down to verses 20 to 23, there's another little note telling us who lived in the country of the Amorites or Ammonites before the Ammonites did. The Ammonites are the third people God told Israel not to mess with as they passed through their land. And look carefully what we're told in verses 20 to 23. That too, that's the land of the Ammonites, was considered a land of the Rephaites who used to live there. But the Ammonites called them Zamzamites. They were a people strong and numerous and as tall as the Anakites. The Lord destroyed them from before the Ammonites, who drove them out and settled in their place. The Lord had done the same thing for the descendants of Esau who lived in Seir when he destroyed the Horites from before them. They drove them out and have lived in their place to this day. And as for the Avites who lived in villages as far as Gaza, the Kaftorites coming out from Kaftor destroyed them and settled in their place. Now I know all these names are bewildering, but it really doesn't matter if you can't keep the names straight in your head. What is significant to notice here is the Lord's involvement in this. Before the Ammonites lived in their land, the Lord destroyed the people who lived there before them. The Rephaites, also known as the Zamzamites. Then we're told the Lord had done the same thing for the Edomites, the descendants of Esau that we heard about earlier. The Lord destroyed the, destroyed the Horites from before them. Now neither the Edomites nor the Ammonites were God's chosen people. They didn't even worship the Lord. And they were in no way central to God's purposes on this earth. But here we discover the Lord fought battles for those people. He fought battles to give them the land he had chosen to give them. These people might be peripheral to the big story of God's work in history, but that doesn't mean God is uninterested or uninvolved in their situation. Verse 23 mentions another people called the Kaftorites, better known to you and me as the Philistines. Here they're called Kaftorites because they originally came from Kaftor, which apparently is another name for the island of Crete. 
The Philistines arrived on the west coast of Canaan at the same time the Israelites were moving in from the east into Canaan. And the Philistines would later become significant enemies of Israel. But here, as we're told that they displaced the Avites who, went, who had the land before them, the implication is that, again, it was the Lord who went ahead of the Philistines and fought for them. And all of this takes us back to Paul's statement in Acts chapter 17. The Lord has made all the nations. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. There are no exceptions. The true and living God is not a territorial God. He's not a God, in other words, with power in one place but not in another. He's not a God who ignores some nations and gets involved with others. That was the assumption in the ancient world. The idea was that each God had their own little territory and their own particular people. But the God of the Bible shows himself to be both high above that idea of little territorial gods. He's high above, but he's also much more involved. He is God unlimited. He rules all nations. And right in the middle of all this, these notes about the Lord fighting for the people around Israel, look what we're reminded of back up in verse 14. Speaking now of the Israelites themselves. 38 years passed from the time we left Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the Zered Valley. By then, that entire generation of fighting men had perished from the camp, as the Lord had sworn to them. The Lord's hand was against them until he had completely eliminated them from the camp. So this same Lord who can fight for the nations around Israel, he can also fight against Israel herself. If the Israelites live in defiance of God, he may go into battle against them, as he did with that defiant generation. As the new generation of Israelites now approach Canaan, what they need to know is that the God they're dealing with owns every square foot of his earth. And he oversees every moment of history. This is a God to be taken seriously by everyone. And then verses 24 to 37 point us to a second foundational truth. God rules the timing of his judgment. Having three times told the Israelites to pass through territories without engaging the people in battle, now the Lord's message changes. You see that in verse 24. Set out now and cross the Arnon Gorge. See, I have given into your hands Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his country. Begin to take possession of it and engage him in battle. So, 
having been told, this land is not for them, now the Israelites are told, this land is for them. Although it's east of the Jordan, it is part of his gift to them. And the lower part of it is occupied by Sihon and the Amorites. Verse 27, Moses recalls how he made the same request of Sihon and the Amorites as he'd already made to the Edomites, Moabites, and Ammonites. Verse 27, let us pass through your country. We will stay on the main road. We will not turn aside to the right or to the left. Sell us food to eat and water to drink for their price in silver. Only let us pass through on foot, as the descendants of Esau who live in Seir and the Moabites who live in Ar did for us, until we cross the Jordan into the land the Lord our God is giving us. But Sihon king of Heshbon refused to let us pass through, for the Lord your God had made his spirit stubborn and his heart obstinate in order to give him into your hands. The text is crystal clear. It was the Lord who made Sihon stubborn and obstinate. And the following verses tell us the result of that. Sihon ignores Moses' request to walk peacefully through. Instead, he raises his army and he comes out to fight Israel. The Lord delivers him over to the Israelites. And the Israelites strike down not only Sihon and his army, but also his people leaving no survivors. And that might make our heads spin. Why did God tell the Israelites to leave the other nations alone, then tell them to attack the Amorites, then make them stubborn and obstinate so they'd pick a fight, instead of letting the Israelites walk on by, as Moses asked? And while we're at it, why did the Israelites destroy all the Amorites instead of just the army? Those are big questions, and they will come up again in this book. When we get to chapter 7, we will focus specifically on God's instructions to totally destroy certain nations. But here, something we heard recently in 2 Peter is very helpful to us. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter's talking about those who scoff at talk of Jesus' return. Their attitude is, if it hasn't happened yet, it's never going to happen. But if you remember, Peter's response is, don't misinterpret what's going on. The reason Jesus hasn't returned yet is because the Lord is patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And the rest of the passage explains when Jesus does return, he will bring terrible judgment on the unbelieving world. Not just its kings and its generals, but all of it. All of its people will perish in that judgment. And we can take those words from 2 Peter and apply them to what goes on here in Deuteronomy. Because what Peter promises on a worldwide scale happens here on a small local scale. All of the Amorites perish in God's judgment. 
But make no mistake about it. God has been patient with these Amorites for centuries. We know that because hundreds of years before this, when God promised to give this land to Abraham's descendants, God said to Abraham, I'm not going to give you the land now, today. Your descendants will receive this land many years in the future. And here's the reason why. I'm not going to give it to you now because the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. In other words, you can't have the land yet, Abraham, because I am being patient with the Amorites. But a day will come when my patience runs out. Then, Abraham, your descendants will have the land. What Deuteronomy chapter 2 is describing is what happens when God's patience runs out. Were the Amorites any worse than the Edomites, the Moabites, and the Ammonites? Those peoples who God commanded Israel to walk past? Well, they probably weren't any worse than those other peoples. But God's time for judgment on the Amorites has come. He will deal with those other nations when their time comes. And here, God makes Sihon's already hard heart so hard that he's unwilling to make peace with Israel. And the language used here echoes language used in the book of Exodus. Exodus describes how when the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, God made Pharaoh's hard heart even harder so that he refused to let Israel go. In both cases, they were evil men committed to evil deeds. Pharaoh and his people worked the Israelites ruthlessly as slaves. Sihon and his people have been piling sin upon sin for generations. And in both cases, when the time came for God's judgment on their sin, he made them stubborn and obstinate, so they could not escape his judgment. That does not mean God took away their responsibility for what they did. It doesn't mean they were puppets. What it does mean is this. We dare not mess around with our opportunity to humble ourselves before the Lord. We dare not mess around with the opportunity that we have. Because if we do, the day will come when we no longer have the opportunity. As human beings, we tend to take God's patience for granted. And we tend to be shocked by His judgment. But the Bible takes exactly the opposite view. As far as the Bible's concerned, God's judgment is taken for granted. He is, after all, a God of justice. But according to the Bible, it's God's patience that ought to shock us. 
that a just God would hold back his judgment for so long. And here for Sihon and his people, judgment comes. The reports of Israel's arrival, God says, will cause the hearts of some people to tremble so that they worship the Lord. But those reports have no impact on Sihon and his people. It's too late for them. And then finally, chapter 3, verses 1 to 11, give us a third foundational truth about the Lord. God rules the things you fear. In many ways, this account of Israel defeating King Og is similar to the defeat of Sihon. But there is a noticeable difference in emphasis in these verses. In both cases, with Sihon and with Og, the enemy king marches out with his army to face Israel. And in both cases, Israel's victory is total. But where the defeat of Sihon emphasized that the timing of judgment was in God's hands, here the emphasis is on God's power over the things his people fear. If you remember back to chapter 1, when the previous generation of Israelites shrank back in fear and they refused to enter the promised land, what were the two things they feared most? It was the big, scary people and the tall city walls. Those were the two things they mentioned. And here, in the victory over Og and his people, Moses draws particular attention to those two things. Look at chapter 3, verse 4. Speaking of Og, at that time we took all his cities. There was not one of the 60 cities that we did not take from them. The whole region of Argob, Og's kingdom in Bashan. All these cities were fortified with high walls and with gates and bars. Israel had feared those high walls so much. But when it comes to it, they proved to be no obstacle at all to the Lord. Moses recalls how the Israelites completely destroyed those well-fortified cities. And then look down to the final comment in the passage in verse 11. Og, king of Bashan, was the last of the Rephaites. His bed was decorated with iron and was more than nine cubits long and four cubits wide. It is still in Rabbah of the Ammonites. That's like a little advertisement for the museum in Rabbah. If you're driving past, take the time to pull off the motorway and drop in. That bed is worth seeing. And it really must have been worth seeing because it was the bed of a giant. The footnote in the NIV tells you that these um, measurements in the text correspond to the bed being 4 meters long and 1.8 meters wide. Og was the last of the Rephaites. They were related to the Anakites. Unusually tall people whose distant ancestors had a hint of the supernatural about them. Israel feared those giants so much. But when it comes to it, they proved to be no obstacle at all to God. Og fell 
just as easily as any other man. The new generation of Israelites are being taught a foundational truth about the Lord. He rules over the things that they fear. If they will keep their focus on the Lord, they'll realize they have nothing to fear. That big bed in the Rabbah Museum was more than just a curiosity. It was a symbol of God's power, even over the most intimidating of people. Now, there are more big, scary people waiting for Israel when they cross over the Jordan River. And there will be plenty of tall city walls across the Jordan as well. But God, in His mercy, has already showed them. He rules the things they fear. And that's true for you and me as well. Our God is not limited in His power and authority. He is God unlimited. There are no boundaries to His sovereign rule. He is not hampered at all by national borders, by city walls, by big people, or whatever it is that you fear. So as we prepare to move in just a few moments to our celebration of the Lord's Supper, maybe this is a good opportunity to speak to God quietly, to mention to Him the things that you personally fear, to commit to trusting His power over those things, And then as we prepare to take the bread and wine, we can also thank Him for His mercy to us. That He didn't harden our already hard hearts as He did with Sihon and with Pharaoh before Him. Even though you and I were no more deserving of God's grace than anyone else, He showed us our need for forgiveness He opened our heart to the message of salvation in Jesus Christ. So let's take a moment before the musicians play just to speak to God quietly and personally where you sit. Bring to Him the things that you fear and bring to Him your thanks for His great mercy to you.
God is a God of justice, and he could have swept you and I away in judgment for our many sins, but instead he sent his son to take our judgment on himself. And Jesus gave us this meal to celebrate that great salvation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the apostle Paul tells us this, the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. 
So this is not just a meal, it's a symbolic meal. The bread and wine are symbols of Jesus' saving work on the cross. And that means this meal is for those who are trusting in Jesus' work on the cross as the only way to forgiveness, the only way to escape God's judgment and receive his eternal blessing. And if that describes you, then please join us. Take the bread and the wine when they're served. But if that doesn't describe you, then please just let the bread and wine pass by today. I'm going to ask the servers if they'll come, please, and distribute the bread. And as you are served, please just keep the bread and we'll eat it together once everyone has been served. the cross, God defeated our greatest enemy. Let's eat and remember.
The blood of Jesus Christ has power to cleanse and renew sinful hearts. Let's drink together and give thanks.
be to God for his gift beyond words. Amen. Faith 
the strength to be faithful This life is not long, but it's hard Give us grace to go on Make us willing and able Lord, give us faith to be strong Father, we cannot see how the sorrow we feel can bring freedom. And as hard as we try, Lord, it's hard to believe. So give us hearts to find hope. Give us faith to be strong. Give us strength to be faithful. This life is not long. When we